0: You're about to listen to the latest edition of The Endgame. This time, Bill Fleckenstein and I will be talking to Harley Bassman of Simplify Asset Management. Uh, One thing I wanted to warn you before we get started is the transcript for this particular conversation will feature all the charts referenced by Harley in the conversation. So I would recommend that you download the transcript from the website to get the maximum benefit out of this conversation. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, my friend and co-conspirator in this little thing of ours, Bill Feckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today? I'm doing extremely well. It's, uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and uh, we have a fantastic guest joining us shortly.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to uh, Harley about all the things they're up to.
0: Yes, Harley Bassman is joining us, uh, Harley of Simplify uh, Asset Management. He's there with uh, uh, our mutual friend, Mike Green. And they're doing some extraordinary things about which we will talk. Um, you know, Harley and, uh, and Mike, along with Chris Cole, have been leading voices in the, in the uh, volatility space for some time now. But the work Mike and uh, Harley have been doing at uh, Simplify is, is worthy of further exploration. So, Bill, I say we get Harley on and chat about all things volatility, interest rates, and who knows where this conversation is going to take us. Let's do it. All right. Harley, welcome to The Endgame. Thanks for taking the time to join us on a Sunday morning, no less.
2: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: You're looking, uh, you're looking a lot more dapper than Bill and I for this time on a Sunday morning, I have to say.
2: Well, I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be audio or video, so I actually comb my hair and, uh, and uh, clean myself up. <laughs> so uh, here we go. The, the, the few hairs I do have are in place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, it's, listen, it, it takes a, it takes a team of nine wranglers to get bills here in place. So uh, you, you've got that all over him. Well, look, um, look, so much to talk about, and uh, you know we're we're so thrilled to have you on. Bill and I have been looking forward to this for a long time now. And you know, I, I guess um, as we've gone through this journey, uh, kind of contemplating all various kinds of end games, there are a couple of things that that keep coming up and keep coming back as as something that a lot of people are wary of and watching and see as potential triggers, and they are volatility and higher rates. And you know, these are two fields where you have a, a, a great pedigree and have spoken so eloquently about it in, in various places. So we thought this was a great opportunity to get you on and, and talk about those.
1: So if we're gonna get inflation out of this, and we certainly have it now, the belief is uh, amongst the vast majority of investors, as near as I can tell, is that inflation will be transitory. Obviously that's the Fed's tune. So it seems to me that the really crucial question is, potentially, it's not so much will there be inflation, it seems to me like, what will it take for market participants to decide that inflation is actually a problem? Because if that then happens, it makes it almost impossible for the rates to stay where they are, or for the Fed to continue any sort of monetization scheme, because they're just pouring gasoline on a fire then. And I've been struck at how sort of clear the inflation case is for so many people, and yet they refuse to believe it. And you can see it with the 10 year, whatever it is, 140 ish today, around there somewhere. And the current rate of inflation is whatever it is, four, five, eight, whatever. It's here and present, but people seem to think it's going to vanish. And if that psychology starts to change, then the Fed is in real trouble. And sorry to go on so long, but um, so I guess my question to you is, why do you think the vast majority of investors seem to buy the transitory story and want to look through this problem? Is it simply because half the world was born after 1980 and they've never seen it?
2: Well, respectfully, I think the core to your argument is is totally flawed. You're assuming there's a relationship between interest rates and inflation. Why? Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm not. Okay. See, that's, that's, that's the whole point. Like, like, I will stipulate you are right on the inflation. that it's not transitory. We can talk about that for a while. But let's just say we will get over 3% inflation as printed by CPI, which I don't believe in. But nonetheless, let's- Neither call do that, I, but that's okay. Of, we will have a three-handle, you know, going forward for some amount of time. Okay. Why do rates have to go up? The Fed can keep them down. They they kept them down, you know, post World War II. Yes. Um, and maybe that is what the plan is. They will just buy, like like Japan, they'll just buy the bonds and balance sheet them and keep rates at one one and a half. Even if we have four percent inflation, you'll have a massive negative rate. That, that that's really the question here. Is 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 that once you break the linkage of inflation to rates, you know, a whole lot of things are possible. Now the answer I think is this. Let's say they have the three or four handle inflation. Let's say the Fed or the government or someone, I mean, the government could do it by demanding that banks buy treasuries. They could force banks to do that because they're regulated. Yeah, entities. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's a whole lot of ways for, people, for the government to keep rates at the current levels if they want to. So what happens then, the other side of the bloom gets squishy, which means currency devaluation, possibly. We, we don't become the reserve currency of the world anymore, which seems unlikely, but whatever. There's a whole other host of things that could play out where you keep a massive negative interest, real interest rate, which is unclear. But the usual usual game, if we weren't the world's reserve currency, yes. we have a, we'd have a devaluation.
1: Right, so yeah. but, but we r- are. Uh, so let me, yeah. let, let me push back on that a little bit. I can see easily how there could be a disconnect between rates and inflation for some time like we're seeing now. But to me, there has to be some reason for that, not simply because the Fed wants it there. We've we've seen throughout our careers periods in time where the market kind of got fooled by what was going on and then the, the quote unquote market or people changed their mind. And what the Fed wants doesn't matter at all. Yeah, they might be able to pin some aspect of the curve, but it would seem to me that if psychology has changed, and the market is saying, look, we don't trust you guys. Who's going to sit there idly by buying these coupons when they know they're getting beat and they're aware of being beat? I mean, maybe it blows up in the high yield market because spreads blow out due to inflation, not due to credit. I don't know, but it I don't think we can presuppose that simply because the Fed wants the rates there, they can they can have them be there for as long as they want them to be.
2: I think they can keep them there for a very long time, but just take your logic and keep going on, what will happen elsewhere? They can't control everything. Correct. Like you have Correct. three degrees of freedom, yeah. you can control yes. two of them. Yes, um, yes. Well, but what you, what you, initially what you see when you have inflation like that is the stock market goes up because when you own a stock, you own a claim on a real asset, a real producing entity. And, and by the way, if you go look at uh, Weimar Germany, when the, you know, the pictures of people with wheelbarrows full of money, if you owned, the German stock index at the time and just kept it for the whole time of inflation, you did okay mm-hmm. because the stock market went up as the currency went down because you had a claim on a real business, uh, which is kind of amazing. But so stocks initially do well. Uh, you could see we're seen housing prices explode higher, people buying lumber or, I mean, like forestry. So, I mean, I think that's what might happen is you're going to see real assets continue to rise in value as the currency devalues locally, locally being in our borders, not relative, because other countries are also devaluing.
1: So what you're sort of suggesting is the release valve, so to speak, rather than being treasuries going down, uh, obviously it could be the currency going down, but it could also be other assets just going up a ton.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. But circling back to the idea of, let's just say there is some kind of relationship between interest rates and inflation. Okay. okay. What does that mean? Now, let me have two topics. Page five shows the labor force growth rate versus interest rates. And I would propose this is actually going to be what drives uh, interest rates in the next five years. COVID and everything else is kind of a little match for money printing, but I think this is going to happen no matter what. And what you saw historically was the inflation and the high rates we had in the 70s and 80s was not because of money printing or going off the gold standard per se, but was this pig in the Python, baby boom generation moving through the economy. And as they hit age 30, 35, right? In years, you know, 1975 to 85, they're buying houses, they're having babies, they're buying cars, they're buying washing machines doing all this spending. And they're demanding these goods from the smaller World War II generation. Thus you got inflation. going to happen what's been happening now is the boomers as they go through life their spending patterns change in the next five years what you're going to see is the boomers will retire at a slower rate because well once they retire they're retired and the millennials get married at an older age than we did and they have kids at an older age than we did and we're going to see this inflection of the millennials entering the workforce and demanding goods and the boomers who are supplying the goods, reducing, and that should take rates up a little bit, not to 10%, but up to three to four, yeah, sure. Um, So I that happening. So let's follow on with this idea of, why do we care about this? This is on slide six. There is, these two slides are terrific. They don't prove a darn thing, but they do look pretty, they look nice. And what they show here is that when you get In the last 20 years, we've had a correlation of stocks to bonds, where stocks up, bonds down, and vice versa. You could call that a negative correlation of bond price to stock price, or a positive correlation of stock price to bond yield. So it gets confusing there when people talk about this, because we have to do it, stock price versus bond yield, because you can't measure a bond because it's maturing all the time. But that's how the correlation is measured on these things. As long as inflation's been below two and a half, bond yields below four-ish, you've had a correlation where stocks and bonds hedge each other. What happens if inflation goes above two and a half, or rates above four, is bad things happen to good markets. Stocks, yeah, risk, and risk bonds,
1: parity. Risk parity goes to zero. <laughs> exactly.
2: And and when was the last two real big drawdowns? It was March a year ago stocks and bonds down together, and then December 2018, stocks and bonds down together. That's when the Fed like panicked and did everything when you have no self-hedging mechanism. My proposal is this. If rates go above four and if inflation goes above two and a half, the correlation of these two assets may flip back to what they were prior, and that would be a bad outcome for a highly levered financial economy. Will this happen? I don't know. What I do know is if it does happen, it's not going to be pretty. And thus, you know, I've tried to create ideas and strategies that will be fire insurance in case a fire happens. Remember, you, you don't buy fire insurance because your house is going to burn down. It's because it might burn down, even those very small yeah. odds. Right. And so I view this correlation, flipping the correlation, as being the number one risk in the market, uh, which may not happen. But if it does, it's going to be nasty because you have to, it, it'll require a massive deleveraging of everybody who is, you know, Basically, betting that the Fed will keep everything nice.
1: Yeah. What, um, Without going into details about the, the product that you've mentioned that would, would capture this, is there something that the Fed could do that would like, kind of be down the path of what you think might happen, but they kind of throw a, a monkey wrench in the works by uh, coming out with yield curve control or something like that? And do you think that at some point they're likely to do that? It's a form of the suppression, you said, with making the banks buy bonds. But what would that do in the scenarios that you've created?
2: Well, I, uh, I publish a macro commentary every four to six weeks. Uh, it's on convexitymaven.com. It's free. Be my guest. Uh, you can email me. I'll add you to my distribution list. And my most recent one was open letter to the Fed, uh, which I wrote before their last meeting and before Jackson Hole, uh, offering my ideas of what they should do. And one of them was basically allowing the back-end rates, long-term rates to rise. Mm -hmm. And they could do that by buying fewer mortgages, which is a different topic, and buying one to zero to five-year bonds, buying fewer 30 years and 20 years and buying front-end bonds, buying fewer tips. Another topic we can talk about, by front-end bonds. Let the curve steepen. Curve steepening is is a public policy good. Number one, it takes the the, the money transfer. Right now, we're taking money from savers to corporate borrowers. If we take rates up by a point or two, which is not that much, you kind of reverse that flow and give more money, more income to retirees, which is a public policy good because that means they're less reliant upon Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Taking the back end up helps insurance companies and pensions. Um, The boomers are retiring, and you will notice that the stock market rally in the last year, as well as the bond market rally, has actually um, uh, closed the gap for defined pension plans. So helping insurance companies, uh, which I guess are evildoers, many people think, nonetheless, having pensions and insurance companies more solvent is a good idea public policy-wise. Finally, having releasing the back end gives you, gives us... Gives the Fed, gives everyone market information to go make decisions. And and this is one of the most interesting charts is um, uh, on page three. It's the Fed funds rate versus the five-year, five-year forward rate. But in a nutshell, people, it's just the shape of the yield curve. Ten-year rate minus the two-year rate or the three-month rate, whatever you want to call it. And I wrote a paper in November of 18 uh, on this chart here is is when this – this uh, rate flipped, is that the best predictor of a recession is not the stock market or other government stats. It's the yield curve. And in November of 18, December of 18, the yield curve inverted, mm-hmm. which meant that theoretically, you were going to have a recession in the first quarter of 2020. And at the time, I said, I have no idea how or why this could happen. But the rules are the rules. If you're going to get a recession 18 months from November 18, you're going to have it in March, April of 2020. I will not say that this chart or I predicted a pandemic, but that did happen and we got a recession. And when we look back on this thing 20 years from now, it will not say COVID. It'll say curve inverts, recession a year and a half later. Yeah. So if the, to the extent the Fed can, does yield curve control, you've basically removed this bit of information to policymakers and to investors as to how to manage risk, how to take um, monetary and fiscal policy actions, because you don't know the real status of the market. And that's not, that's, the, that's the best reason to release the back end is to find
1: the market clearing level. Well, um, uh, that makes perfect sense, which brings up another question. The, the Fed doesn't seem to be able to understand aid distorting market information nor do they understand risk very well at all if we look at the behavior of what Greenspan did in the late 90s, what Bernanke, you know, uh, how they were both in denial about the housing bubble. And so as smart as that is from a policy standpoint, do you think that they as a group are smart enough to figure that out? Because they don't seem to understand they're distorting the tips signal, however lame it may be, by buying all of them. And uh, just like you know, they're suppressing a lot of signals with their buying. Do you think they even think about that? Because when I went back and wrote my book on the Fed and I read all the minutes through the bubble and a half, I can see they, they they paid no attention to risk. Now, we won't know what they're saying behind the scenes for another five or six years when this cycle's minutes are released. But I found them to be completely clueless about anything regarding risk in my in my, in my research. I'm not
2: willing to connect that dot, Okay. So once upon a time um, in, in, in mortgage land, we used to create CMOs, collateralized mortgage obligation. This is this is not junk bond stuff. This is ordinary Fannie and Freddie, Ginnie Mae bonds being sliced and diced. And in a nutshell, we would go and take a 30-year mortgage, call that a cow, and slice that into filet and tongues and eyeballs and everything else and sell them to various people. Because it turned out that lots of people have different needs. They don't want the whole cow; they want pieces. An insurance company wants a 30-year bond. They need that duration liability because they're buying bonds to match people dying in 30 or 40 years. A bank, well, they want something five years on in because that is the average liability of their deposit base. So people have different needs for different things, and we would go and slice them up. So we went buy a bond at 100, slice it into pieces, and sell for 100 and a half total. Everyone's happy. And I would go look at some of the bonds that we would sell to commercial banks. The banks had this issue where they could not buy a bond over 100, over par, for reasons I'm not going to talk about. And they also had a restriction. They couldn't buy bonds that had more than a five-year maturity. Once again, regulatory reasons. So we would then go and build bonds that would trade at 100 and maybe five years or less. And to do that, we had to go and do stuff to it. And the bond we create, I would say, was not a great bond. It wasn't a bad bond. So if there were 10 bonds available, they might be buying bond number six. And I'd say, why do they buy bond number one? They must be stupid, clearly. And after a while, I came to realize, no, it turns out that they could only buy bonds six to 10. And six was the best of the bonds they could buy.
1: Uh-huh.
2: So they weren't dumb. They were actually very smart, but they had restrictions. This goes to the Fed. Why are you assuming that the Fed doesn't know about inflation or about tips or about buying or about the curve. Maybe they do know, but within the current available options they have in the current political structure, this is what they can accomplish. I'm not saying that's true or false, but I'm going to propose that to you that maybe they do know and what the path they're taking is the best they can do given their restrictions.
1: Well, I obviously don't know the answer and you could be 100% correct. I'm extrapolating you know, which, of course, we're all told, especially in this business, not to do, you know, we don't want to extrapolate the chart. I'm extrapolating what I learned about the Greenspan Fed in particular, because I I spent so much time reading the minutes. And I can tell you from reading them, they were epically clueless about any risk associated to the insanity we saw in the stock market in late 99. Now, of course, things that go on today make that look like kindergarten. So I could be wrong. I could easily be wrong. But that's that's my reason for saying they were dumb then, they're dumb now. I, I can't prove it, and I don't know. It's but there's,
0: just, there's, there's one other variable to this, um, Harley, perhaps we could talk about, and that is the need on the part of the Federal Reserve. I mean, their, their primary need, really, is one of confidence, making sure that the system is confident in them and their ability to stick the landing they keep promising us they're going to do. The importance of forward guidance has just increased and increased over the years. So that it's not necessarily first and foremost about what bonds they can buy. It's what do we need to accomplish? And what we need to accomplish is stability in the system, belief in our competence, belief that we will follow through what we said, and belief ultimately that we will keep rates low and liquidity high, For the foreseeable future. So, you know, when you talked about how they could keep rates low for a very long time, I mean, we've been in a zero bound now for, you know, almost 15 years now, I guess. They've made a couple of attempts to get them off the floor and failed miserably each time. So, when you talk about their ability to keep rates low for a long time, I'm interested because what appears to have gone on in the last decade and a half, is they've, what they're actually trying to do is get rates up. So it's interesting that it might turn around to the idea that what they need to do now is keep rates low, because I think you're right. They've had no problem doing that. But the longer they do it, the more important that confidence aspect becomes. It's, it's a long, convoluted statement rather than a question. But how do you factor that idea that the Fed's primary job now is, is stability and confidence in the system?
2: I think, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, we operate on a system of trust that people will, will 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 honor their word. I mean, why is the U.S. still, notwithstanding all the politics and everything else going on now in the last four years, is we have the rule of law that we enforce in this country. And I won't say no one else does, but certainly the other major powers out there, like a China or a Russia or whatever, they, they don't have a rule of law. We do. And that's very important. And that relies upon trust. The, Fed response to the financial crisis was spot on right. You had to go where a financial, a levered financial economy, you have to save the plumbing, which is the banks. Were these guys bad actors? Yes. Should some of them be in jail? Yes. Am I disappointed that they weren't thrown in jail? Yes. But we had to go and save the plumbing of the system. Similarly, the Fed needs to go and at least give the appearance of trust and stability um and thoughtfulness and um so that that is the point if we really, i mean if you lose trust in that there we're all we're all done um so but the question really you're asking is could bernanke have let the taper tantrum continue and still have trust the system the answer i think is yes yeah that was the big mistake the fed made Greenspan, if you want to go dial back i will tell you the the, the, the mistake there was twofold number one was uh, it's almost religious. He's an Ayn Rand disciple, maybe even a, closer than that. And he believed in free markets and rational thinking. Turns out people really are not rational uh, and, and they're not risk neutral either. So, and there's been, you know, a Nobel Prizes offered on this concept of proving it. So for instance, people are terrified of sharks or lightning, but it's a, it's a microscopic risk. Yet they'll get into a taxi. And not put their seatbelt on. I, that's, that's totally nuts. But, so, so, but he was relying upon rationality which didn't exist. Um, the other thing he did was measured pace. By saying, I'm taking rates up 25 cents every six weeks, that everyone in the world can go and sell a 30 basis point out of the money put a gazillion times knowing what he said. The Fed should get rid of the dots and get rid of all this forward guidance they can still keep the front end low, but if you remove this certainty of sorts, you create moral hazard, right? We have moral hazard. People take too much risk. So to some degree, you have to take the training wheels off and let people go figure things out for themselves. Um, and I think you can do that and still have some moral authority and thoughtful clarity. I do not think they're, you know, two different things.
1: I completely agree. That's that's kind of uh, my underlying theme is that they don't understand the risk. When I say risk, I mean they don't understand that when you tell people what's going to happen and that you take any any uncertainty out of the picture, they're going to get out over their skis and you know too much leverage and all these things. It's so hard to divine human nature, but I think that was the original thinking of the the. The, the Fed in the old days were of, of sort of taking the punch bowl away because you couldn't be sure, but you didn't want to get misallocated capital to get too out of hand. And that's that's kind of what I, what I mean when I say I don't think they understand risk. They don't understand moral hazard and, and those sorts of things. And, they, and, and so they're, the policies that they're doing that they think are the right thing, they don't understand the unintended consequences. And we keep coming back to the same sorts of problems.
2: Well, let's be clear. I would not say they don't understand. I would say that they don't appreciate them or value them okay. as much as we do. Yes, They value ba- current stability more than this uncertain risk in the future.
1: Thank you. You said it you way disagree- better than I did.
2: Which we disagree about. Well, Let me circle over to um, another thing that's interesting right now. Um, and this is going to be on slides 15, 16, 17. So these are the term surface of implied volatility. So if you go look at uh, slide 15, it's the implied volatility of a three-month option, six-month, one-year, two-year, 10-year option. And as one might expect, that term surface floats up because as you go in the future, Mm -hmm. you have less visibility, less and more uncertainty. And what is implied vol, but a projection into the future of uncertainty the cost of insurance in the future. We pretty much know what that's doing the next two years. They kind of told us, but mm-hmm. past there, we know not really. Um, and the three month option, by the way, that's that's gonna be close to the VIX, uh, plus a little bit of uh, extra for, for stuff. What's amazing is over the past five years, this term service has flattened. Wow. Look at the three yeah. month to one year to two year, the two lines are basically the same. Yet the long date options have come down. That seems totally anomalous in a world where we actually have more uncertainty in the future because we've printed all this money. We have all this kindling. We could say that the spark will happen tomorrow or maybe in 10 years, but certainly the world five years from now seems to be a riskier place. right? the potential for more diverse profiles than right now, yet- Implied vols come down. Go to slide 16. The exact same thing for the SX5E, the European Dow. And what's amazing is the implied vol for a one-year option is the same for a 10-year option, which seems crazy to me. Yeah. Go to the next slide. This is dollar yen. Same thing. Lower volatility and flatter surface. I think this is the most interesting thing for the financial markets right now because the Fed is not controlling long-dated volatility. They're controlling the realized volatility, the market movement of today's prices by buying treasuries, by offering a Bernanke-Powell put on equities. But those are very short-term, one year, one month, two months. I mean, that's short-term stuff. Going out five years, we really can't be sure there'll be a Fed put. We can't be sure there won't be higher rates of inflation, why isn't these long dated options And I find that, I, do I have an answer for this? I have a few possible things, but my response is, it doesn't matter why. If you are an investor and you have access to these ultra long dated options, you should buy them. As an asset class, this is the most mispriced thing in the market right now um, to be able to buy ultra long insurance. And um, right. we're, we're, the, the risk is what I spent and the payout profile is unlimited.
1: I, I know you said it doesn't matter why. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. You said you had a few ideas. The only one I could possibly think of is because rates are so low around the world, people are kind of gotten carried away selling vols of all sorts. Or is there really not much transactions out that far? And that, that's really not the answer.
2: Um, it's really more of a demand issue, than a supply issue, because there really is not a lot of selling in okay. your
1: options. Okay. okay, But
2: there is a lack of buying and the lack of buying is basically okay. the fed saying we're going to keep things like this forever. Okay. And, and, and we're going to keep rates low forever. And then people buying products that have a short convexity profile, a, a where, where people are buying things that implicitly sell options and volatility, not directly, but implicitly. And by mm-hmm. doing that, if a dealer or some other entity buys an option via a structured product, they then don't need to go and buy that long-dated option anymore. And thus that demand for long-dated vol diminishes, and the prices go down from the lack of demand. So that's kind of what's happening.
0: But to me, it also signals that even though we live in a very volatile world in the here and now, the market's level of confidence, as we were talking about in the Fed's ability to – make everything okay over the long run is incredibly high still. It it seems like people are still invested that over time, volatility will be smoothed out and dampened by the Fed. They're going to continue to be successful at what they're trying to do.
2: No no question people are. I mean, you have two things. One is people have overconfidence or at least a lot of confidence in the Fed. The other is, gun to my head, I got to go and have an income or have a profile to survive. I mean- I got four kids and they're all much better stock market traders than I am, seemingly. Uh they they, they have the good things to avoid <laughs> buying MLPs. Um uh, but but I mean um the boomer generation, you know, we we're looking for, and we're the ones who own the assets, right? Fairly or unfairly. We need to find ways to go and you know, put them to work to have some kind of income to survive, and that's driving interest rates down on everything. You see it come down, forget this bonds. You have junk bonds coming down when they're 4%. Like why do they call them high yields? It's insane. It's not high yield. It's, um, but you'll see the, the cap rate of multifamily mm-hmm. housing investments come down and other sorts of things out there where people are looking to go and, and try to de- deploy assets to income somehow, some way. Because they have to, so it's—I I, 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 mean—that's that, more just the Fed holding things down. They—they they have a gun people's heads to go and do something,
0: right? So, um, one of the other slides in your in your chart deck showed the tips market, and a fascinating chart about the Fed actually buying more tips than the Treasury is issuing. You know, this is, I think, a recent phenomenon. So, so talk a little bit about what's happening in the tips market because it, it again—it it kind of runs against the narrative that inflation's transferring and everything's under control.
2: Um, In preview, I'll hit slide eight first, which is the Case-Shiller Home Price Index versus the owner's equivalent rent input into CPI. And what you've seen is this red line explode much higher, so the home prices are exploding way above OER. Why is that? Um, In a nutshell, what's happening here is the Fed is doing it from lowering interest rates on mortgages. And so the current case shiller median home price nationally is about $365,000. And let's say the mortgage rates now are two and a half percent, kind of making up numbers here. Mm-hmm. Nobody, except for you guys, buys a house. Okay. People buy a, they sign up for a 30 year stream of payments. Payments.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And yeah. people's, in general, their income is not volatile. Okay, they have some kind of job, and they might get a raise, but it might be 5 5%, 10%. I mean, they're, they're not having their incomes double. So what they can afford is a number that is not moving. Mm-hmm. So let's say they can afford $2,000 a month for a home. That number is not budging. With rates at 2.5%, they could buy a house for 360 365 If rates went to 3.5%, up 1% only, and all else stayed the same, and the person still could only afford 2000 a month, that home price would have to drop from 365 to 320 And so what you're seeing here really is not home prices going up, but the Fed taking rates down. Okay, now let's roll over to slides nine and 10. The Fed, about a year and change ago, was owned about 10% of the tips market. For reasons unclear to me, they increase their buying of tips to owning 25% of the market. And more anomalously, they are now buying more tips that are being net-net created. Because remember, certain tips mature every year, and then they get rolled over, and they get bought, and they issue new ones. So you have to look at the net number of, of new creation. And they're buying more than are being created, which basically drives the price up. So now you have a record high tips price, record low real interest rate of negative like one and a half percent for 10 years. This is crazy town. I think tips are short because, and, and more than that, forget the DVO one, which is how much will a tips price move given a change in interest rate? I can't even tell you the sign of the DVO one. I'm not sure if tips go up or down in price given a move of the 10 year up or down. I can make the, and I'll make the case now, the tips go down in either case, unless we get the scenario you've described which is we get a three or four handle on inflation and the Fed keeps 10-year rates at a buck and a half. So the only way you own tips is if we think we're gonna get a lot of inflation and the Fed will not let rates budge, which is a possibility, but I I think at this stage of the game, you need to be very, very certain to buy a tip security.
1: Do you have a feel, you and Mike maybe talk about, does 25% of the market distort it in a meaningful way? Like we think that, the, the share of passive in the equity market has distorted it. I have a smart bond geek friend, uh, and he and I I pointed this out to him. As I think I'd seen it in one of your other presentations, he says, "Yeah, but seventy five of the percent of the market still trades, so the fact that they're buying all this doesn't really matter." Now, intuitively, I don't buy that, but I suspect you guys have probably thought about it and have some sort of idea how much does it matter? Do you do you think, or does can you even guess at that?
2: Uh, Mike, Mike Green, my partner at Simplify, uh, for people who don't know him, he'd have a better answer than I would. But in, in my view, this is your classic stock versus flow. So stock is they own 25%. Flow is they're buying more than being created. I would be a flow person, and I would say that to the extent they're buying more than being created, they have to acquire a security from someone who already owns one. Uh, to go get it. And that has to push the price up. So I would say to the extent that they're buying more than creation, that's driving it up. And if they reduce that, that would take it down. And once again, I really think they got to go and cut this down. I want to know what the market clearing price of tips are when you only have real people doing it for their own reasons and get a real handle. I mean, right now, this is like a circular firing squad. The Fed goes and buys tips, drives the price up, and then points to inflation. It's like you can't do that.
1: But but you know that that's not really very debatable. What you just said. A lot of the things we've talked about, people can have different opinions. But what you just said of them with their thumb on the scale is not really debatable. So why why isn't this a big topic of conversation in Bondland? I've seen almost nobody, and there's very few people that have made that that point there. Why do you think that is? Well, not that I care to go and uh, quote Donald Rumsfeld,
2: but um, <laughs> sometimes you've got to go and fight with the army you have. I mean, it is what it is. Okay. Like, and, and we can't change it. And clearly you've tried to, you've written about it, you've spoken about a great deal about the Fed and, and, and you've said they don't understand risk. I'd say, I think they do, but don't care or they value it differently. I think I mean, you're right. It's like, what are we going to go do? We're not going to change their minds. So now it's with the situation we have, how are we going to go and invest, protect ourselves, try and make money, be clever, most of all, not get our you not know, our hands chopped off by, by, by you know, a
0: surprise? Yeah, Harley, I, it, along the way, this, this whole kind of journey we've been on the last couple of decades, the Fed have, if you look carefully, been playing kind of catch up and fighting the last war, it seems. Everything they've done is to try and make the system stable uh, or, or kind of stabilize it after an event. And yet we've we've reached a point where you've said in this conversation that you believe we will get inflation now, and yet you would be an absolute shorter of tips. So every attempt they make to kind of make things more stable increases the inherent fragility of the system because they are plugging holes in the dike left and right and trying to as they fight the last war and solve the last problem. And of course, human nature being what it is, everyone's looking for a way around this. So... Given what we've kind of got here in that a world where we believe inflation is not transitory and that the stimulus and the fiscal side of things will get the money, as you said, into, into the hands of people who spend it, and yet we have the instrument that that the government have designed to try and protect people from that being a short, what does that say about how this ultimately might unwind because is it a rates thing? Is it a currency thing? Is it just a volatility thing or is it a confidence thing? There, there are so many different ways that this house of cars could fall over. How do you kind of handicap that?
2: Well, now that I've slapped Bill's face, I can go and play nice
1: with him. <laughs> Listen, slap his face all you want. <laughs> it's okay. I can take it, Harley. <laughs>
2: I, 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 I think he's right that there is a relationship between interest rates and inflation over the long term, okay. <laughs> not the
1: short term, but the long term. You know what? That's an excellent distinction, by the way, all seriousness.
2: And so therefore, since I do believe there's that kind of relationship, what I think happens is we get the inflation as described here and that we do get higher rates because it actually is a public policy good mm-hmm. slowly mm-hmm. and that that money that's leaving the bond market will go into the stock market, other asset classes. So I think you're supposed to be, I mean, you know I, I I write a on my website, I publish a um a model portfolio. my stocking stuffers by once a year, like in December, my, what I, what I think is the best ideas out there, it's basically my personal portfolio. I have a personal isda everything you read about I have on. I mean, I eat my own cooking and, and I've been proposing for the last two years to buy these ultra long dated risk reversals, where you buy a long dated, you know, listed options. So two years out, out of the money call versus selling out of the money put. So you've been able to buy, the skew is gigantic. Mm. So you could buy like a 10% out of the money call and sell a 22% out of the money put for zero cost going out, you know, two years. And so I like that idea because I think that that we're not going to have prices an uh, 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 equity collapse? Could they pull down ten percent? Sure, twenty? Why not? But I mean, I'll, I'll buy it down there, and can we go a lot higher? Yeah, we sure can. As long as the, print, the money has to go someplace. So things like that, I like those ideas. I I, I think they're viable, and um, I think that the question is, will we get inflation? The answer is yes. Will be measured by CPI. That's unclear. I, I do not believe in hedonics. I don't yeah, believe in substitution. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe in OER. I'm um, going <laughs> to start it on <laughs> something, So really, it's a matter of will CPI actually be quoted higher? And the answer is probably yes. And will the Fed then go and reduce a back end? That's the best way to go. And, mm-hmm. and the soft landing is-
1: Let the they, long end go.
2: They stop buying mortgages, they reduce purchases, and they move the mix to the front end of the market. Keep the front end at zero. Fine, keep it at zero. Well, the back end move up. I think that will be the way to go and balance out the dislocation we have right now. And that's our, and, and 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 you know, back end money. What's that about? That's about in theory. Once upon a time, if it cost, if I'm building a factory, a nuclear facility. Okay, which is a 30-year horizon. I have a profile of what it costs to go and build it, and what my return will be on this factory. And if I can make 8% on that thing and I can borrow money at six, that's a good idea. I should go do it. If I can borrow money at 10, I'm not going to do it. That's where this the Fed taking rates up and down was supposed to be this, like the nuclear rods in terms of the economy. I don't think taking the 10-year from one and a half to three or three and a half makes a darn bit of difference in the overall economy. Well, it'll take the steam off the housing market, which is good, but I don't think that long, like, like big... Corporate investments are gonna change by taking rates up by a buck and a half. That's kind of absurd. Taking them to a seven, yeah, that'll, that'll change the world. But taking them to three, three and a half. And if the Fed, the government borrows on the front end plus the plus the back end, fine, they can roll the debt over that mm, way. Yeah. Mm. All kind of works. And, and 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 going back to the mortgage market, um, I gotta see which, which slide this is. Uh slide seven. This is the most important slide in the mortgage market. This is the par mortgage rate. So the rate of a Fannie Mae bond is trading at 100 versus the 10-year rate, and its average is 75 going back over 20 years. The Fed has taken this rate down to the mid-40s right now. They're buying bonds, mortgages, such that they've driven the spread of a mortgage bond versus a treasury or swap bond to a very low level. And this, as I just said, has taken housing prices up. It would be a public policy good to let that rate, that spread, go higher, which would, in theory, reduce housing prices. So millennials who are now in the exact spot of buying homes, this is the sweet spot for them expanding and household formation, the Fed should not be in the business of making that process more difficult. It should be the process of making housing more affordable and accessible to millennials. Not going and pumping up the price of my house so I feel good
0: yeah Harley, this this is, this is so interesting to me because you, you, when you when you talk about the idea of taking rates from one and a half to three percent of the ten year, you're right it sounds it sounds trivial it doesn't sound meaningful. When you talk about doubling rates, however, which is the same trade, it starts to get a little bit more frightening for people and when you go through this and you talk about lowering the house prices, for millennials, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's exactly what needs to happen. But there is so much wealth, you know, the the aim of all this was to increase the wealth effect. Bernanke's famous thing about the wealth effect and how people go out and spend more, which, which didn't work. There is so much tied to these low rates that even if you do take them from one and a half to three, in the real economy, does it matter? Possibly not. But for the existing loans, for the existing asset prices, so much of which is levered, it potentially makes a catastrophic difference, no?
2: I disagree completely with that. I, I, I think okay. what you're doing is playing fun with stat. When people start using percentage increases, the answer is grab your wallet. It, it, <laughs> okay. Come on, you, you don't have a strong opinion. <laughs> no, that, that's just silliness. <laughs> you know, you're telling me that taking rates up from one to two is more impactful than taking rates from nine to ten? That's absurd. Well, it does if
0: you if you can only afford a one a, a, a payment a monthly payment at one percent right now, and you're going to double it on me.
2: You're not doubling you, it when you take a mortgage rate from one to two. I mean, the principal payment is the is, is the key driver over here. Yes, so you're not doubling your mortgage payment. So, uh, and like like with crime in New York City, it's it, 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 they all they talk about is how it's you know it's up by twenty percent. It's up by 20% from microscopically small number? We used to have 2000 murders a year, now we have 100. So it goes from 100 to 120, like that's a problem? Like people are talking about New York going to the dogs. Well, it might be going to the dogs, but I mean, I'm there for a side man. Let me tell you something, crime is not going out of control. This is not like the like the uh, you know, the, 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 the mid 80s. I mean, this is just this is nuts. So whenever they talk percent as opposed to absolute numbers, grab your wallet, it's a trick.
0: Right. No, I, okay. Let, let me rephrase it because you, no, you're look. You're absolutely no. You're absolutely right. And and it's it's about time I got slapped around the face as well as Bill. I I, I feel <laughs> yeah. bad. That it's only him getting slapped. Pick on us you're ball. absolutely right. Let, let, let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. The way housing housing prices have increased means there are an awful lot of people who have taken on mortgages they can barely afford because they. And I've I've just walked through this with my daughter in the UK trying to buy her first house. I've watched that process play out and how they've had to borrow more money to buy a house and get, and they're getting beaten out of three, four, five homes because they didn't pay enough. So they've had to take on a mortgage that is a real stretch for them to afford on a monthly basis. Now, okay, that it's fixed for a few years, but if rates start to go up after that, absent a concurrent increase in wages, which I think we've covered at the top of the show, is is unlikely to, to outpace it at the time being, you know, it, these interest rate hikes... Will matter, I would imagine, to to a large swathe of the population who've been forced into overpaying for a home.
2: Oh, there's no question to the, the extent that people have adjustable rate mortgages with, 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 with a very small teaser in the front end, they got a problem. They're, they're, there's risk. But once again, I don't think Fed policy will be to take the front end up. It'll be to let the back end rise. So either A, you buy in the US a 30 year fixed or a 15 year fixed. And you're 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 locked in because most people most housing turns over seven to ten years anyways. Yeah. Or number two, you have an arm that prices up the front end, which is fine because if tens go from a buck and a half to three and a half, who cares if the front end stole a quarter? So 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 I'm proposing that the back end rise, not the front end. So your daughter who has has a front end arm will be okay, or has yeah. less risk of being un-okay.
1: Yeah, I think your policy descriptions are. In all seriousness, the best I've seen, there are plenty of us, myself included, who've criticized the Fed for lots of things, but I hadn't been able to tease out a a sort of half-assed game plan to get out of here without everything turning to shit. And your policy prescriptions, I think, are actually quite sensible. I don't know if they'd be smart enough to follow them, but I I think it makes
0: pretty good sense what you're talking about. Thank you. you, Harley, I mean, have you found it... Uh, doable to have a dialogue with policymakers? And if so, um, how have you found their reaction to what you've said?
2: Um, Well, most of them don't don't call me, Uh, although I have. (laughs) No. I I, I am on the rotation with one of the um, uh, regional feds. Uh, Every three or four months, we go chat about the world, but that's their job to go and basically reach out to people and uh, get someone's opinion. And uh, many of these people, uh, policymakers, are on my distribution list, so they get my commentary. Does it get erased immediately? Most likely, but uh, lines their birdcage. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I do have, you know, a voice that some people hear. I, I, there's lots of, lots of smart voices. You guys are very smart voices out there, and you have a very broad audience, and people listen to you, but there's just, it's, it's, it's never as easy as it seems, you know? Like, like, I'm not going to yeah. go and dive into politics. That's always suicide. But like, for instance, what's happening now in Afghanistan, my answer is there's something we don't know here. OK, I'm not sure what it is, but there's something we don't know, because clearly this is not working out well. And I think we have some pretty smart people up there I, I, to, speaking as a, as a whole of the of the uh, you know, deep state that, that are do do good things in general are pretty, you know, we have the spies out there are pretty good. Also, there's something we don't know um, and it, it'll be revealed someday. Maybe maybe they just can't say it in and, and the same way, you know, maybe with the Fed, maybe there's things we just don't know. And don't appreciate and don't value properly. Maybe there's relationships we have with, with other countries because we are the world's reserve currency. Uh who, who, who was that? Was it Baker who said, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, our currency, their problem? Uh no, somebody,
0: it was yeah. that uh, Texan. Connolly. Uh, Connolly. Connolly. Yeah, Connolly. Yeah.
2: yeah. So uh so yeah. Well, they're both Texans actually. I was, I was, I was well, close.
1: Yeah, okay, that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: But, but I, I mean, to some extent, that's kind of true. So maybe there's things that we don't, don't know about, things you can't say. I mean, if you th- really think about it, what was the number one problem in 08, 09? I mean, what really, really was the mega massive problem? It wasn't housing or the stock market or the bond market, any of that at all. There was only one nuclear button that takes everything down. And that's what if everyone thought the banks were going to collapse? Go to zero. And we're gonna game. and we're gonna pull all of our money out oh, to right. I'll, 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 the Yeah, the lot. bank
0: run. The bank, bank run is always yeah. was gonna yeah. go to the zero, bank run.
1: therefore everyone was gonna flee the banks. It was we we're gonna collapse. We would hit a black hole. Financial black holes, what was gonna happen yeah. at the we had at that go, moment. Right.
2: We had to ensure that, that people would not take their money out of the banks because banks lend what five, seven, eight to one. So the deposits are levered up ten you know, five, let's call it six times. You can't have everyone take their money out at the same time because they can't call the loans in. That was the. And did you ever hear anybody ever mention that as a possibility?
1: No. No, not 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 in the official establishment. It was the people on the outside that said that was a possibility. I don't, but. You know,
2: I don't think you've ever heard that on Fox News or CNBC. No, no one no, no, mentioned that. I, no, no.
1: no, 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 not not in the mainstream. But I mean, it was knowable that we were you know this yes. close to the edge. If you were operating in the markets in those days, if if, if you didn't know that and you didn't know what was going on, right? But
2: think about that. To go and get. Policymakers on both sides of the aisle, plus the mainstream talking heads, no one ever said that because they knew if they actually started a real panic.
1: Right. They couldn't you know, contain it.
2: Yeah, squawk, I mean, was talking about an election is one thing, but actually taking down the entire system is an entire, and, and the Fed could not save everything. I mean, I mean, if JP Morgan goes down, they could print a trillion dollars. The whole bank system collapses. Well, then, they, they I mean, it's the end. Right. So I, I think it's important that we maintain that and maybe there are things going on presently that we haven't even thought about connecting all the dots of why they do certain things so um, well
0: i think i think that's actually a great way to wrap it up because i think they do everything they can to keep the system together to your point about what the real danger was in 08 and so all these programs all these alphabet soup programs they have, all the yield curve control, potentially the financial repression, all these things are designed first and foremost to keep the system functioning and together. So, you know, for me, the takeaway from that is if there are things we don't know about, it's that perhaps the, the system in through their eyes is more fragile potentially than, than we think it is, because they do seem to be, as you say, the, your tip charts illustrate that um, remarkably well, they're doing things that are crazy. And I, and I don't think they're crazy. I think, as you as you say, I think there are a lot of smart people there. They just perhaps either evaluate risk wrong, as as Bill said, or they don't care about it, as you said, or the risks are much higher than any of us really appreciate.
2: Yeah. So my closing comments would, would be two. Number one is that sizing is more important than entry level. How big you are, you want to be big enough, so if you're right, it makes a difference. But small, so if you're wrong, it doesn't take you out. Yeah. Number two is... Somehow, some way, this is very difficult for non-professionals, try and get your arms around the convexity or the negative leverage of your financial situation. I'm not talking your portfolio. I mean, the whole package of what kind of exposures you have, I will make you a bet that you've probably sold optionality, sold leverage, because you want income. People have an income preference. That's why people sell options, and don't buy options generally, because when you sell an option, you get the money but you're giving up performance or, or, or long-term price movement. Go look at that. Option prices, volatility is very inexpensive right now. And you should be either reducing your shorts or buying longs. We at Simplify have products that do that, but away from that, there's lots of ways you can go and do these things to reduce your exposure to negative leverage. I would urge you to go and find ways to go and do that. Uh,
0: fantastic, Holly. Just um to, to Let people know wh- how they can find out more about what you, Mike, and the other guys are doing at Simplify because uh, it is a fantastic uh, idea and, and the way you guys are doing this stuff is, is uh, I think, going to be hugely yep, beneficial I to agree. a lot of people.
2: Uh, the firm is Simplify.us. And you can find all of our ETFs there uh, and, in particular, the one I was t- referring to. You can find my commentaries at convexitymaven.com um, and I publish it for free. If you'd like to be on my list, Harley bassman.net. And you're welcome to send questions. I respond to most people uh, uh, eventually,
0: um, and um, so that's that's my. Advice. And, and you're and you're and you and you're on Twitter now yeah. as of recently.
2: I've gone to the dark side. I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I am a believer that the Matrix was prophecy, and um, I I wave. I, I, it's possible that right now I'm lying in a in a waterbed and don't know it. Um, <laughs>
0: Uh, what, what's your Twitter handle for the people that want to find Seeker out on there? Uh,
2: it's ConvexityMaven, at ConvexityMaven.
0: There we go. There, there goes your commentary from six to eight weeks to 10 to 12 weeks now if you're on Twitter. You're going to be spending <laughs> a lot of time on there answering questions, no doubt. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, every bit as good and better than I think Bill and I hoped it would be. So our, our thanks to you for taking the time on a Sunday morning to join us. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks a lot, Arlie. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, Mr. Frankenstein, how about that? That was fun. It really was fun. It really was fun, um, and we both got slapped around. Yeah, you know, it's 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 so interesting, right? Having some disagreement we, we, is 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 useful. That's Fantastic. It's, I, no, but, but, of course,
1: we, we didn't tell them that we have censors here, like Twitter, and anything we don't like, we're going to cut.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, no, by the time I finish, you are going to come out looking the like that geniuses. with us is <laughs> We're going we'll to come day. out looking like geniuses. Trust me. But but it's funny, you know, it it makes you realize that when you talk to guys like Harley, you talk to guys like Mike you have to be so precise with your questions mm. because, you know, I knew what I meant, but when, when Harley started answering my question, I was like, yeah, okay, I get why you, you said that. I, but it's, you have to be so precise. And, and I think that's exactly right. You, you do have to be precise because the world is demanding that precision more and more every day in everything you do because it's so, everything is such a, a fine balancing act that if you're not precise, um, you can end up making some horrific mistakes.
1: Well, yeah, especially when you're in- involved in the complex things that they're involved in, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <clears throat> it's not like to just no. a, you know a-, a stock, which is so easy to understand in in the average. Yeah. When you've got all these moving parts and things like that, you you have to know what you're. You, you really have to know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, you do. It's uh, and and look, I mean, I can't I can't think of a better one-two punch than Harley Boy, and McQueen. Boy, no I mean, That's, no, that's I- some serious serious intellectual firepower there. We'll, well, we'll have to do that, but we'll have to get both of them on um, and chat about this some more because I think, yeah, because uh, I I, think I there's think an awful lot.
1: That it, just uh, discussing the whys and wherefores of what they're doing um, uh, would be educational and thought-provoking for lots of people. And then also they may have a vehicle that people can use to, to better set themselves up. So I think it'd be like kind of kind of a public service Thing. Yeah. I mean I'm not no, trying I, to be silly more. I agree with you. To get out the story of what they're doing because I think a lot of people they, they they enjoy the uh intellectual side of listening to things like what we're doing and other people's. But at the end of the day, what as Jim Grant likes to say, what they really want is a QSIP. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Okay, I like your idea. What am I supposed to do about that? You know,
0: but but the big the big the big problem at the moment, right, is and it's increasingly so is how do you hedge against the really painful outcome? And that, as Harley alluded to at the top of of the conversation, that's a lot easier for professional investors to do than it is for retail investors and, and so what these guys are doing I think you're right absolutely is a, a service so we'll uh, we'll do that we'll line up the two of them and we'll get them back on and we'll and we'll talk about it because I think it'll be hugely helpful for a lot of people Alrighty Alright my friend well as always another enjoyable conversation um, we should uh, thank our guest once more Harley Bassman you'll find him on Twitter at ConvexityMaven you can email him, as he said, at Bassman.com and uh, you'll find uh, the firm, Simplify Asset Management Simplify.us. You should go and check out all those things for sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter if you're not following me already. Uh, at this point, that would be quite surprising, but I'll remind you anyway. You'll find me at ttmygh.
1: And I am at FleckCap.
0: He's still there. Mate, as always, a pleasure. I'll see you again next time. Yes, sir.